I'm Damien Venuto. It's June 29th and this is The Front Page, a daily podcast presented by the New Zealand Herald. Abuse from the sidelines, media blackouts, legal battles to keep players on the pitch. This is the level of drama you'd expect from sport at an international level. But these are all headlines that have involved rugby at the high school level in New Zealand over the last year. So how is it that schoolboy rugby has become so controversial? And are our schools doing enough to protect these teenagers? NZ Herald Editor-at-Large Shane Curry joins us on the front page to try and explain what's happening at school sports grounds every weekend. Shane, you've recently reported on the case of a King's College student fighting to be able to play for the school's first 15. How exactly did this start? It's been a really interesting story to pursue and investigate, Damien. I've been talking to the parents of the young 18-year-old. He was originally at Mount Albert Grammar and spent three years there. And then for personal reasons, uh, essentially around his well-being, he decided at very early in 2022 that he wanted to move to King's. And by that stage, the young fellow, he had played rugby at Mount Albert Grammar, but to no great level, I think, in the under-15s. And he'd been uh, not in any first 15 development program. When he got to King's, he spent about a year, uh, it was a good year, bulking up and adding, adding another sort of 15 kgs to his frame and getting his fitness into check. And come this year, he was in the frame for um, first 15 honours at King's. And that's when the trouble started. So what is the trouble? There's a code that suggests that players can't just jump from one school to the other and then play for their first 15. How does it work? That's right. There's a principles code, the origins of which really go back to 2018, when there was a lot of poaching between top schools in Auckland. And what we essentially saw was rich schools, and in particular, and it was well signalled at the time, St. Kent's, were poaching, paying for scholarships, scholarships and in inverted <laughs> commas, for players to come from other schools in lower decile areas to come and play essentially rugby for them, for the first 15. And what we saw, St. Kent's were a powerhouse rugby team at that time as a result of a lot of these imports coming in and playing in the top school team. So the principals, quite rightly, I get it, uh, they pulled together a code it's a code that is signed by the 12 schools that participate each year in the first 15 competition. They call it the 1A competition in Auckland. And that essentially says uh, any player that has played for a first 15 or is in a first 15 development squad for a school can't then go on to another college and play first 15 rugby for their new school. And that was essentially designed to ensure that there was no more poaching between the schools. It's, you know, it's a pretty basic kind of document it has really, uh, I've spoken to a few people just around its legal status. There is none really. You know, the Education Act is the guiding light in this respect. But Auckland College Sport also has some guiding principles as well. So it's almost like a gentleman's agreement between these schools that they're not going to be engaging in that type of conduct. That's right. And, you know, if I look at the document now, every time there's a new school that comes into the competition and another school gets relegated out, the 12th principal will sign up. So, And it's been in place for about three years. And right now, all the principals have signed up and agree with it, including Kings themselves, I might add. 
We moved him because of a bunch of reasons, not rugby related, it's all about happiness and academic and a few other things. The problem is the 1A code of practice says any transfer by a development player means a two-year stand-down. MAG's principal Pat Drum says the 1A code agreed by principals is transparent to ensure everyone can make informed decisions, adding it's helped stop poaching and inappropriate recruitment. You recently reported on what should have been a legal victory for the boy at the centre of this recent case. But it seems that things are a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah, so as I say, I've spent probably the last month on it. So the boy came from Mount Albert Grammar, joined Kings, as I mentioned. And the argument from the family of the boy is that because he did not play first 15 rugby or was even in the frame for first 15 rugby at Mount Albert Grammar, he had every right to play for King's College. But that's when the trouble started. He actually played some warm-up games for the first 15. The other schools got wind of the fact that he had moved from another school, and King's was told if he plays first 15, then there'd be a boycott. The other schools would not play against King's College. This is, I guess, the threat that the code overseas really is that the principals have the right to withdraw their teams from competition against any school that is seen to be in breach of the code. So Kings was really worried about that. You can imagine that to be the case. So I went to MAGS first and foremost, Mount Albert Grammar, and they eventually said, and this is from their board chair, that the code was an informal agreement and that in this case it was totally over to Kings College as to whether or not the student played. So that was a new development, right? Because up until then, the assumption had been from the various parties was that MAGs themselves were causing a blockage here. The board chair certainly cleared that up. Kings and the boy, the boy's family, then went to the Sports Tribunal of New Zealand. And that's a legal authority based in Wellington. And they held an urgent hearing just last week. And they delivered a decision orally on Friday and a written decision this week in which they gave the student the all-clear to play on the basis that he had moved from MAGS for personal reasons, not related to rugby, wasn't in the frame for first 15 rugby at MAGS, and therefore he had a clear pathway to play for King. So he could be in that first 15 team as early as this weekend, except there might be a new twist. <laughs> and that new twist is that we still don't know how the other 11 principals are going to react to that decision. So there's still a potential that they could activate that gentleman's agreement and then decide not to play, which would undermine the whole competition. Yes, that's right. I suspect the other principals may well see sense here and acknowledge that there are probably cases, one-off cases, every now and again, where a student is entitled to play for the first 15 and that, you know, that there are some other sort of principles to the code that allow for cases like this to be cleared. We hope you're finding this episode of The Front Page insightful. Follow us on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more premium coverage from our top writers, head to nzherald.co.nz slash premium to subscribe. For this incident to go so far seems quite extreme. So why do these schools care so much about their first 15 rugby teams? It's really interesting. It's it's something that I've looked at over the years. I remember when I was first studying journalism and uh, I went to Tauranga Boys College and I covered my first 15 as a reporter. And even back then, and this was in the late 80s, you know, there were heaps of kids on the sideline. You know, there's a fervour about um, schoolboy rugby in New Zealand that doesn't really apply necessarily to a lot of other sports. It's not quite like America where you see college football, and I accept that's at a university level, but 
in America, you've got the biggest stadiums in America are college football stadiums, right? 100,000 plus capacity. So we're not quite at that stage in New Zealand in terms of first 15 rugby. But, you know, we do see with a lot of schools, there's an old boy network, and it is generally men. We're talking about school boys rather than the school girls rugby. So there's an old boy kind of a fraternity uh, that exists, and they're very passionate. They might have been out of the school for 40, 50 years, but you see them going along to an Auckland Grammar game, and they're dressed up in their scarves and their and their woolen hats, and they are passionate. And so that passion extends into the administration areas, the principals. The principals are worried about their well-being of their students. They're very worried about media coverage of first 15 games, and in particular Sky, up until um, this year, Sky for several years has been featuring these games live on Sky Sport, and the principals have also been worried about coverage in the Herald. They think that media pressure is causing extra pressures on students' well-being, um, particularly that live TV coverage, I think. And so they've actually closed up shop. They're not talking to the media at all. I've obtained, under the Official Information Act, minutes from principals' meetings where they're quite clear. They're saying that they will not engage with media at all. It's an anathema to me, really, given that schools generally are seeking as much positive coverage as possible. Were you surprised by that move? Or do you think that pulling away some of that attention from these players is probably a good idea? I think it needs to be a balance. You know, I heard from grandparents and families of kids who relied on that, you know, the Sky TV coverage. They loved seeing, you know, their grandson playing for whether it was Grammar or St. Peter's or one of the other schools. And they might not have been in Auckland and able to see their relatives playing. And look, I I get it. I get where the principles are coming from. But I do think rather than a blanket ban on media coverage, there has to be a halfway house here where there is good positive coverage of of a sport that both shows the school in a great light, shows the sport in a great light, highlights these wonderful performances of young athletes. I mean, I remember we used to run a college sport page at a newspaper I used to work with in Wellington. It was hugely popular. And there was none of these kind of issues that we're hearing about today. In fact, schools would be champing at the bit to get their schools' names and students in there. We've got a full spectrum, so you've got Sky at one end doing the full broadcast, and then all the way at the other end of the spectrum you'll have mum or dad with a phone on the sideline, and they're just Facebook-living the game to grandma granddad that can't make it. Our main focus and concern is when money starts changing hands, and we're talking about secondary school competitions, yeah, essentially they're all minors. That's the bit that probably concerns me more than the, just the straight, are they on TV or are they on Facebook Live? Blaming the media for the pressure is also a bit of a cop-out, given that we have seen that passion for schoolboy rugby sometimes spill over in some ugly scenes. So the Herald recently reported on sideline fighting at a Christchurch school rugby match. What went on there? Yeah, Kurt Bayer did an incredible story for NZ Herald Premium, where he attended the Christ College Christchurch Boys High game. And we talk about the old boys network in Auckland. Well, I tell you, it's strong as ever in Christchurch. Socially in Christchurch, you're often asked, you know, which school did you attend? It's a big thing down there. (laughs) Um, And, you know, originally I'm actually from Timaru, but I found that kind of old boy culture around schoolboy rugby really, really interesting. But anyway, uh, at that game, yeah, a lot of unfortunately homophobic slurs, really kind of down grubby kind of comments thrown at players on the opposition team. It wasn't a great look. The schools down there have put in breath testing at the games to test spectators before they go in. I mean, it's a massive event. It's got a lot of tradition to it, but it looks like they might need to uh, sort of review just 
some of the security slash um, monitoring, I guess, of the sideline. Uh, the teams themselves, they fought competitively and fairly. It was unfortunately just the sideline behaviour that let people down. So this is a combination of drinking and then that so-called passion for your team. Well, if everyone was breath tested, and that was certainly the indication as to what would happen, you know, drinking shouldn't have been an issue. But, you know, you sneak hip flasks in or whatever, you know, and, uh, and, and that passion does arise. But that does not excuse in any way homophobic slurs and, as I say, uh, even sexually driven kind of slurs as well, which are no, no good. I mean, looking at those recent issues and combining them with the referee abuse that we've seen in Super Rugby recently, do we have a cultural problem in rugby that extends all the way from the top to the bottom of the game? I don't think so. I mean, we are passionate about rugby in New Zealand. And I remember when John Hart was the coach of the All Blacks all those years ago, and he came back from an unfortunately a, a World Cup campaign that wasn't successful in the late 90s. He owned a racehorse at the time, and that racehorse got spat on down in Christchurch because John Hart owned it. I mean, it was ridiculous. And so we have had these incidents across a number of years. I've actually seen, in my own view, and in terms of the All Blacks, some maturity sort of now coming in in terms of of how the All Blacks have performed. I think it's partly because we won the World Cup in 2011 and 2015. And so even when we didn't win the Cup in 2019, I think New Zealand reacted a lot more maturely than previous World Cups. So that's a good thing. Long may that continue. But it is a worry around this referee abuse and what we've seen in the schoolboy rugby. I do think there are elements of a rugby crowd that are not great. Scotty Stevenson, who I interviewed recently, sat down with him for an extensive interview. He talked about that wonderful occasion at Eden Park last year with the Black Ferns, which was, you know, packed out Eden Park. It was a family occasion, very much a festival time. It was a wonderful event. Whereas the mood at an all-black game is, you know, there is slightly more sinister elements to it, you know, and I don't mean that in a criminal sense, but we go there with the expectation the all-blacks will win and that does at times cause issues. Does it actually point to the need for the media to be reporting on these things because calling them out will lead to progressive change over time? I'm always of the view that we should be throwing spotlight on the shade and into dark corners. I don't think media bans work in that sense. We'll still cover First 15 rugby in the sense that, you know, we want to know the results and how teams are performing. And our audience expects that, you know, the families of players and the old boys of the schools themselves um, enjoy reading it. And I know that. Uh, we see it in our audience stats. And so that will continue. But you know, it would be just nice if we had the principals on side a little bit more to help us write up the positive stories about some of the players. The other big cloud hanging over rugby at the moment is the risk of injury, both at an amateur and a professional level. Now, we've seen headlines recently pointing to the dangers of this game. All Black, number 1,000, the highest paid player in the world in the brutal European leagues. A rugby player whose job was never to buckle. The whole game for me was involved around collisions and winning collisions. Brought to his knees by the game he once dominated. There's no sugarcoating this. At the age of just 43, Carl Heyman has early onset dementia and probable chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE. Are there sufficient concerns about the potential injuries that these young players could suffer? No doubt, and I think over the next few years we will see major developments in this area, particularly as New Zealand rugby gets more on board with the research. You know, the likes of Dylan Cleaver and Mark Kreisel and other reporters, they have looked at all the overseas evidence. I've started reading Carl Heyman's book and what he's been through and what he is now going through in terms of mental health and dementia issues. 
And look, there has to be change. And I think that could evolve in terms of better protection. I know the mouth guards have changed over time, but do we look at more better headgear? We've seen what's happened in American football. You know, watch this space. There has to be developments. Shane, the final question has to be, do you think that the public, the industry and the schools themselves are putting too much pressure on these teenagers? Because fundamentally, that's what they are. They are still teenagers. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure on teenagers at the moment, especially if you see what they've gone through in the last three or four years. You know, they haven't been around their mates. You know, they were essentially locked up for three or four years, whether that was through online learning or we were all locked up, right? And so that's caused extra pressure. So yes, we do need to be aware of that, but I also see sport as a solution to it. I think when you're out with your mates, you're playing on the field, you're enjoying that company, and I love the competitive spirit of First 15. The media has a role to play there. The principals, I certainly acknowledge, are looking after, first and foremost, the safety of their students, but I think we can find a healthy balance. Thanks for joining us, Shane. That's it for this episode of The Front Page. You can read more about today's stories and extensive news coverage at nzherald.co.nz. The Front Page is produced by Sean D. Wilson and Paddy Fox with executive producer Ethan Sills. I'm Damien Venuto. You can follow The Front Page on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. And tune in tomorrow for another look behind the headlines.